Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Simon Williams. Simon Williams, in his long and varied career, has worked for NME and XFM, all at the same time as running his own record label, Fierce Panda, which was responsible for releasing debut records for Embrace, Coldplay, Keen, and lots of other bands. He's done all this, and he's written a book about it called Pandemonium, How Not to Run a Record Label. We spoke about all this plus much more. It's a fantastic episode for a fantastic guy. I hope you all enjoy this and I'll be back again soon with another. Thanks. Right, thank you very much. Um, Simon Williams, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. You are a journalist who's worked for the NME. He worked on XFM. You run Fierce, Fan, Fierce Panda record label and you've wrote a book all about this called Pandemonium, How Not to Run a Record Label. Uh, so it's a pleasure to speak to you and just if you want to get back to the start and how you grew up and stuff like that. Um, well, I mean, the Pandemonium book itself is the kind of the story of uh, my birth and uh and the near death of fierce panda from start to finish um and um and in terms of growing up it was um uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Walthamstow in east london mm-hmm. and um and a lot of um classic 70s tropes like you know playing football for 17 hours a day and uh, and discovering elo and sort of everything stemmed from there, really, in about 1978. That's the first time I discovered the power of orchestral music. There always seems to be a, a bit in a young boy's life where they, they kind of move from football to music. I think it, it's usually when you realise you're, you're not as good at football as you think you are. Yeah. Um, so was, was that the case for you? Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah, probably put in a bit too much credence on my sporting skills. No, I never really, I never really thought that that hard. Um, you know, I grew up in, uh, I went to school in Edmonton, and there were some really, really good footballers there because it was that kind of the inspiration of Tottenham, just up the road. And we even had the same coloured um, kit. We even had white shirts and uh, and blue shorts and blue socks. So that right. was that was a nice touch. Admittedly, at that time, Tottenham themselves were absolutely appalling, and they just got relegated to uh, what was the second division. Mm. So, uh, you know, I guess you, you always strive to get that balance right, don't you? you yeah. Know, kind of like, you know, the best music and the best football, but sometimes it gets quite difficult to carry off. It, obviously, hailing for Walthamstow, I was surprised to read through the book and there's only one mention of East 17, uh, quite towards the end. So you were obviously a bit before East 17, so would you consider yourself the most famous Waltham Stonian. Um, there, there's quite a few people there now, I think, because because the Walthamstow Village sent it up market. So I think there's been, um, you know, a few people have kind of passed through a more famous, but but yeah, I mean the E17, the E17 boys definitely definitely put it on the map, and uh, and obviously famously stay became a massive Christmas number one song even though there's actually no reference to christmas on it someone just <laughs> said why don't we just stick some bells on and make yeah. it a christmas song <laughs> and hey presto now you hear every single year 
But, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I had a really nice, um, that was the most meta E17 moment was me living in E17 and actually going to the pub with Tony from E17 and uh, yeah. and interviewing him. Because um, ironically enough, their press officer at London Records was um, Stephen Lamack's wife at the time. So you had this weird interconnection and and obviously E17 themselves were, were slightly slightly grubbier than the other boy bands of the time. You know, we probably couldn't have got away with covering Take That or any or, or any of the other acts, but but E seventeen were kind of were kind of filthy enough for us to uh, hang around with. Not for long though; they were really grubby. Mm. And obviously, you've mentioned Steve Lamarck a few times as well. I mean, Steve Lamarck is a a good friend of yours, but it seems to be kind of a competitive edge to your kind of relationship right throughout the years. So. I mind reading Steve's book, God, about 20, 20 years ago. So was this kind of a conscious effort to kind of write a few wrongs and catch up with him in terms of book writing? No, no. I mean, I, 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 I think it was um, the problem wasn't competition. The problem was just it was there was no competition whatsoever because he was just he was just so bloody good at everything you know <laughs> he, he was he was just there first you know he did the fanzine before i did he joined the enemy before i did was a dj before i was everything like that and obviously yeah once he'd written the book 20 years ago there was little point in me doing a good book because it would have been exactly the same story so i guess it's just taken me 20 years to to create my own my own agenda and get out of his shadow so obviously when you were young your your father committed suicide is that that's correct um, yeah. and that that's kind of how the, the book starts basically so how how did that affect you then growing up i don't know really because it was just because i was so young that um you know you, you you have no comprehension of it um i knew it made me a bit different because the 70s you know all the kids down my street had brothers and sisters and mums and dads mm-hmm. and um and it was only in the 80s that I started meeting people who came from similarly kind of sort of not not battered or shattered but kind of you know gently split households um and then uh, you know it was only when I had my own daughter that I started to sort of get fret about my dad and start to think about him and because you started to pace yourself it got really weird like hang on how old was my dad when I was born and and how old was he? How old Scout now? And you know, what so once you know, once I got past that age of when I was born, then that made it easier. Then once I got past when Scout was became six years old, I thought that's another hurdle gone through. Uh-huh. You know, and you kind of, you know, and in the end you, it, it, it's 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 always there to a certain degree. But but only like very, very, very background, you know, it, I never got any help for it. And it was only when you know, I sort of saw the psychiatrist just before the start of COVID and, and, and you know, it's just a classic for him. You know, tell us about your dad. Oh, he died when I was five. Magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. You know, he's like, he's like, his eyes were glowing. This was, this was absolutely, you know, psychoanalyst <laughs> gold. And uh, and it was, that's what he said. He said, this, this explains everything. It's been sitting within you for waiting to come out for 50 years. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you're the expert. Mm. Well, well, that's just a hang as well because you had such a busy life that you, you, it probably took to the kind of circumstances towards the, the like twenty nineteen. It probably took to the end for you to settle down and actually have time to, to stop and think about everything that had gone on before. So, 
you ended up in hospital, didn't you? Yeah. And that's kind of where I kind of get the gist of the start of your kind of musical story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just for the benefit of the listeners, tell us what happened there. So, um, yeah, so I kind of uh, ended up trying to take my own life at the end of 2019, um, New Year's Eve Eve, as uh, no one ever calls it. And then, um, and then, yeah, ended up, uh, ended up in um, the Royal Free Hospital for a couple for a little holiday, mm-hmm. um, and being put back together by the nurses. Um, and it was kind of, you know, there was going to be they're expecting liver, liver failure, and then that became all right. And then it was going to be all the kidneys are in trouble, and then they leveled out. And then, as we all know, once you spend more than a week in any kind of hospital you start to get ill because they're terrible yeah. places to be when you're sick. Um, but, you know, yeah, got through it and then, you know, left after, a, you know, had the psychological all clear and the physical all clear um, after a couple of weeks. And then, um, and then obviously I was in, I was using up an acute bed. So, um, you know, the quicker they got me out, the, the better. Um, mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, obviously the next time I saw that ward was um, on a program on the BBC two called hospital. Um, where the film crew had gone in, and that's that acute ward had been given over to um, intensive care COVID patients. Mm-hmm. So I'm there was, in, uh... so there was that was kind of there was a bit of context for you, you know, just when you you know I felt bad enough about holding you know keep being in a bed that some sort of kidney patient could be using, let alone uh, you know people people about to die. Yeah, because you you were the first person in the acute ward. Um, in 2020, wasn't you? That was like one of your the best achievements in 2020. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations, you're our first patient of the year, said the nurse. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, going back then to the start, like kind of fanzines, and that's when you, you started going to gigs and selling fanzines and stuff like that. So, how did that come about? What what made you? What gave you the odds to to start a fanzine? Um, well, I started going to gigs in nineteen eighty two, and they just seemed like really really good fun. And I was only sixteen at the time, so I couldn't drink or anything like that. Um, and I'd go and see things like the Farmers Boys and U two. I'd go to this place called the Lyceum, mm-hmm. um, so it was like fifteen hundred cap. And then you know, within a couple of years, I thought you know, well, Wales is out there. Um, and then sort of just started discovering smaller and smaller venues and um, and then ended up at this place called the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town, mm-hmm. um, which seemed to be full of complete lunatics and weirdos, primarily because it was. And it was um, masterminded by this guy called John Fat Beast, who uh, ended up being massive friends with Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. And, um, and for a while, virtually every decent kind of punkish slightly grungish band would come through there whether it was mega city four or snuff or manic street preachers um and that was where you know that's where i found the, the fanzine scene was mm-hmm. kicking around you had people like steve mac and mick mercer at melody maker just um just trotting out their own little publications and then selling them and making money from it and then spending that money on beer so this is like <laughs> excellent idea so i just kind of followed followed that really but i had yeah i'd been going to like gigs for four years before i even started doing the fanzine that was just uh-huh. a kind of another 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 thing you do to keep yourself entertained so when was the first time you you bumped into lamarck 
Um, I'm not really sure because we kind of we were like ships in the night for um, quite a while, and um, and we ended up in this situation where bands would move on from the Bullen Gate and they'd start playing this place called Dingwalls, and there was a Monday night there called Panic Station, mm-hmm. and it was that kind of between point from after just after C eighty six and just before Baggy. So you'd see this real mixture of bands, like you'd see the Lars and the Wedding Present and the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and all those kind of people. And and you had this weird situation where one week you'd do the sales would be really good. So you could like you'd, you'd sell a few copies, get enough money for a couple of beers and maybe even a kebab on the way home. And then the following week the sales would be terrible. Uh-huh. And um, and it turned out that's because there was someone else selling a fanzine. There was this bloke called Steve from Essex. And I bought mm-hmm. his I bought a copy of this and he bought a copy of mine. And um and then uh, and it was only when I read in his book about uh, that he had the same thing as me because obviously we were each other. So uh-huh. the other person going along and getting getting there early for the fanzine buys was him. So he moaned about me in his book, just saying I was killing <laughs> his crowd. Um, and then out of that, you know, I was looking looking through some of our fanzines recently for for my book, and there was like you know we were just constantly referencing each other. But it, it took me ages to realise that actually that that Steve L was actually the bloke from the NME. He was very he was very very coy about it. He was, right. he was very principled. He didn't he didn't he didn't sell himself as some enemy bloke trying to you know do a fanzine. He was he was, he was trying to be very very punk rock about it, which is kind of admirable. Mm. And obviously, at that point, were you you were doing interviews as well for your fanzine? Oh you God, yeah, yeah, yeah. So First how- one. First one how was that? How was it? Sorry. How was um, How did it feel doing that? Obviously, at a young age, going and interviewing people. It was absolutely how... brilliant because you just didn't know what you were doing. Right. You know, you're an absolute idiot, and you just go and the first one was like uh, interviewing the high school works, and we just mm-hmm. went we went side of stage at the electric ballroom where they were headlining, and just said, "Can we go and can we interview the high school works?" And we just got let in. And then, uh, and then ended up back at the Columbia Hotel, this place of like you know rock and roll glory, uh, over near Lancaster Gate in West London. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe we just got lucky with the first interview, but then, and then we pretty much did all the C eighty six bands, who again were really really nice and indie. Um, and um, you know, and and, and you'd, you'd ask them weirdly just asking loads and loads of questions about how they felt about the music press which obviously the music press would never ask them so you had this guy you got it was quite it was quite postmodern, but um but yeah and i loved all that and then but you know towards the end we started doing bands that hadn't been in, in the music press we started discovering our own bands at the bull and gate um and and you know really going for it mm-hmm. so obviously that led you and that led you into nme how did that work how did they Transaction ANME come about. Yes, I was um, selling the fanzine at a place called Yulu and popularly itself for playing. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of girls there, and I went up to them and said, "Would you like to buy a fanzine?" And one of them said, "I've been looking for you." And it turned out that she was the live editor of the NME at the time, called Helen Mead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went in and got some reviews off her, and um, and so started an eleven-year journey. Yeah. You have, to kiss a lot, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prints, and you have to sell a lot of fanzines to find that one person at the Popability Self gig who's actually the live editor of the enemy. Yeah. So uh, if you'd known that, would you just have turned up at that gig and you, you wouldn't have needed to do all that slog beforehand? If only well, you part of the to... slog, but then it turns out that um, the reason why um, she knew so much about me was because she was actually Stephen Matt's girlfriend at the time. So he'd obviously <laughs> be saying to her, 
Look, there's this other nutter out there who keeps going to gigs all the time and trying to sell his fanzine. And that's what they wanted back then. They, You know, loads of us came from fanzines. Stephen Wells did, James Brown did. You know, 80% of the staff had actually come from doing their own fanzine because that was that was part of the fun. That was the kind of thing. It's a kind of, it's like a miniature version of what's going on now. If you talk to um, book publishers, you know, you, you've got books out this year by myself, Will Hodgkinson, Ted Kessler, mm-hmm. people like that. And it's, um, and I said to my publisher, what's the difference between us and say, you know, a normal pop person doing a book like Gordon King or Mickey from Lush. And he just said, it's, um, you understand libel laws. So that guy, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to send copies out to people saying, can we get away with this? You know, you, you, you self-edit. And I think that was the same thing as, you know, I ended up becoming live editor at the NME myself after Helen had gone. And um, and obviously, I always looked out for the next generation of fanzine mm-hmm. writers because I knew how much it took to get that far. And I knew that they weren't just doing it just to get in the door at the NME. You know, if you want to just get, you know, there are loads of other people who turned up who had been to two gigs in their entire life and expected, you know, but they knew they knew they could write. Uh-huh. And expected a job at the NMA, but it's just it's kind of you know and some you know some were okay, but the but the fanzine writers were the, they were the real heart of it all. Well, I kind of find similarities with the fanzines and stuff that I'm doing like the podcast just now yeah. because it's people that have got a passion for it, and that's why they're doing it. So I mean, I'm not making any money for podcasting, but I get to interview people that I want to hear their story. So. It's kind of the, the same sort of thing with the fanzines. You you want to speak to people you're interested in, so... Um... Yeah. And also, it was just an aspect of it, you know, from that little Bull and Gate scene, you had people who became DJs, people who became music writers. You had Andy Ross from Food Records was there at the time, you know, who ended up looking after looking after Blur. Um, you had Chris Meyerhill was the booking agent who ended up being live agent for Death Care for Cutie and Keen. You know, we all we all kind of accidentally found our own path and um you know but there was no one there saying one day i'm going to run the music industry because we'd have just we'd have just sort of slapped them and um mm-hmm. and made them buy us another beer you know you can't behave like that down the bull and gate <laughs> yeah so i mean what one of the the first things i noticed about your nme days you, you mentioned in the book uh on the same day you interviewed harry hill you bumped into paolo maldini in a lift and yeah. um, you went to see No Doubt. So, I mean, were days just like that? Was that just running them all days at NME, just randomness? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, because cause the more, you know, it was just, you just never knew what you are going to do one one day one day to the next. Um, I, guess the, I guess the Harry Hill one is probably more extreme than most. That's why it stands out, because it's not, you don't normally bump into you know, the AC Milan squad in a lift in Marylebone. But yeah, yeah. it certainly, but it captures the sort of the essence of, you know, the madness of it when it was, you know, a very hectic time. Obviously, you started out then the live section, then you moved on to the single section where your first single that you reviewed was Made of Stone, in mm-hmm. Stone Roses. Uh, so what was that like then, the single section and is that considered then a step up for the the live? Yeah, yeah, that was the, that was the most important important part of the paper. That was the one you got your photo in there, which was very mm-hmm. exciting. 
and you could play God for a day by choosing the single of the week, although most of us chose about four singles of the week, to be honest with you. It's like it diluted it. And um, and you just give major record, major record singles an absolute kicking just to balance it all out because you can't be nice about everything. Uh-huh. Um, and it was yeah, it was just it was just absolutely yeah it was brilliant and you'd base it and that's when all records are physical so you'd go home with a you know massive IPC carrier bags bulging full of seven inch singles and twelve inch singles and stuff like that and um, yeah no it's uh, that was that was the yeah the, that was the the highlight because it was because it was more fun than doing you know obviously having a front cover feature was 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 more um, more exotic but you had to transcribe an interview for loads of hours whereas with <laughs> to sit there and listen to the music melody maker rivalry there was mm-hmm. i i used to buy nme and melody maker religiously every week and i actually preferred melody maker because melody maker went to kind of a glossy magazine first in it yeah uh, so I didn't realise that you've worked in the same building. No, so what no was, a lot of people didn't. Yeah, so what was that like? Because obviously you were, as I was led to believe, considered rivals, but you were probably just backslapping each other. Yeah, no, I mean, some yeah. some has gone really well. Again, you know, if you, you go out to the Bull and Gate and then you'd hang out with nice meditamaker journalists, um, sometimes you go on trips abroad with them. And some were just really nice human beings. Chris Roberts was great. Ian Kittins was good. I was really good friends with Ian Watson. And Stud Brothers were really, really, always really good fun. Because there was only like a couple of pubs around there at that time as well. It was before the South Bank had been completely revamped. Mm -hmm. So you had Oxo Tower, IPC Tower, where we worked, and ITV Studios. That was it back then. Um, And so, you know, we had to go down to the Stanford Arms. Um, and that was the local pub for sort of both papers at that time, or the nearest anyway. Um, yeah, most of the time it was it was it was it was fine. You know, there was kind of if if they didn't like us, they just wouldn't talk to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and some took the piss out of out took the piss out of the enemy, but no more or less than we took the piss out of Melody Maker. It was kind of like a light hearted, light hearted, furious battle mm-hmm. that um, that some of us just didn't care about. We just liked drinking. Well, obviously, uh, Steve Sutherland, he, he took over NME, didn't he, after he left Melody Maker to, to join yourselves. So what was that like then when, when somebody from fe- that side came over to join yours? How did it? Well, that's, it yeah, that's, I'd say that's when the um, that's when the battle side of it kind of reared its head. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was just a weird, because he was one of those ones, Steve, you know, you'd see him down the pub with, normally with Alan Jones, the editor. And then uh, he'd, you know, he'd always give you a smile and a hello. And then for some reason, he just he just did this piece on suede and he put them on the front cover. And then he just said, oh, we, we were just idiots because we hadn't put suede in the front and we were, I don't know, we were rubbish. And um, well, it's like, it's fine, a bit weird, but, you know, hey-ho. And then, you know, a year later, he becomes our editor. And he go, ah, oh, now that's weird. That's really weird. <laughs> and, um, and it, you know, it went as well as can be expected if... If, uh, if the publishing overlords expected half the staff to walk out straight away and uh, and refuse to come back. So, so yeah, Stephen Mack, Andrew Collins and Marianne Hobbs all walked out, never to come back. Um, Stuart McConey wasn't far behind. And it's just, it's still one of the most peculiar, you know, peculiar decisions in the history of music publishing. I mean, I suppose you could say it was right. I think by the time Britpop was happening, Steve Southern was going around saying that he was running the music industry, but... Mm. You know, I think even I could have edited the enemy at that point and made it some kind of success. 
you know, bearing in mind the amount of support we'd given those bands and, you know, uh-huh. although to be fair, the peak of that was just, you know, it was already the end of it, wasn't it? When they had the the, the contenders front cover, mm-hmm. you know, which I thought was one of the most just ridiculous things of all time. Bear in mind, we'd been writing about Blur for five years before Oasis had rocked up. Yeah, you know, Blur, I mean, Blur had been around since 1988. So yeah, just, Blur were one of the, the most the indie, indie bands there is. Yeah, and then it was all like, you know, and then it's all on ITV, ITV News going, the battle of this, and it's like, that's a good thing. <laughs> but you know i mean to be fair you know to be fair steve steve sutherland he absolutely stuck it out and in the end you know a form of peace broke out and um you know he certainly didn't he certainly didn't attempt to upset anyone while he was there he didn't it wasn't him coming in sacking everyone and creating a new dawn he didn't try and bring in a load of you know a load of friends from melody maker he kind of he, he kind of stuck with it and basically he just let me get on with rebuilding the entire team so mm-hmm. out of that you know it was either right just before he turned up or after he turned up that we got sort of you know johnny cigarettes and ted kessler and james oldham and keith cameron and all those people and just basically started all over again Right. And uh, and just created an absolutely brilliant team. They throw in, you know, we had like Gina Morris and Sylvia Patterson and you know um, Susie Corrigan and and some you know some really really excellent girl writers as well. Mm-hmm. So some of the things you were responsible for as well. It was you that came up with the the Brat Awards. Okay. So I mean, it's like one of the 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 coolest award ceremonies you can get. There's always there was always some story to come out of it. It had the best um, award you could get with the, the middle finger. Yeah. Um, and also you done the, you reviewed the, the Water Rats review, in Oasis. Yeah. So, I mean, these are some of the things you're responsible for. So a lot of people wouldn't realise. A lot of people don't realise who, who did this and who did that, who came up with the Brat Awards. So... You must be proud of, of stuff like that that you've done, because I mean, I don't know. I know who who done the Brat Awards. I don't know who came up with the Brat Awards. So um, yeah, that's, that's an achievement right there. Yeah, yeah. There's also yeah, exactly. it's just again just another pun though, isn't it? Mm. You know, we need we need something to compete against the Brits. All right, yeah. let's call it the Brats. Right, that meeting over. That was literally the meeting lasted like one minute thirty seconds before we could go back <laughs> down the pub. Yeah, another quote for you as well, and I don't know if this was at your time at NME or whether it was today with Fierce Panda crossover, the Idlewild quote, mm-hmm. um, it sounded like a flight of stairs falling down a flight of stairs. Yeah. I heard that quote years ago, must have been when it came out, and I would never have thought that I'd be speaking to the guy that he came for. That's <laughs> yeah. one of the that's one of the best descriptions of Idlewild ever. Yeah, yeah, especially those early days. Yeah. Because I mean the original thing was like it's it's supposed to be sounding like a Dalek falling down a flight of stairs, wasn't it? That was the original right. thing. Or any or a, a, a kitchen sink falling down a flight of stairs. But yeah, you're you're right, Idlewild the Idlewild was so shambolic in those early days that flight of stairs falling down a flight of stairs. It was yeah. the only uh, the only way to describe them. And brilliant as well. They're terrific, terrific bands, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, the first time I seen them at Tina Park, and I just um, happened to come in mid-set, mm-hmm. and Roddy was just kind of centre stage, on the floor, on his knees, 
he'd back screaming and like I'd never heard him before and it was I was just captivated by the the kind of chaos it or was he was he wearing his shoes? Uh, oh I can't remember. Can't remember. He was still kind of kicking about and he's he was he was wearing a shirt at the time. Cause I right. I went about six months wearing the same sort of shirt as him. Yeah. No, he kind of he I noticed especially in the early gigs in London, he'd always for some reason before they started playing any music. He'd, uh, he'd always take his shoes off and put them very carefully by his microphone. And uh, <laughs> I think once, I think it must have been a couple of gigs when people just started nicking him. So he said, oh, I'll stop doing that then. <laughs> the, the lessons you learn, eh? Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to go into Fierce Panda, but before, before we go into Fierce Panda, because that kind of Fierce Panda spans everything. But yeah. uh, you joined XFM uh-huh. and I was I was uh, emailing you to get you on the show, and I happened to be like a couple of emails going back and forth. And I was sitting one Sunday with my wife, and I put on a documentary called uh, "Kick Out the Jams," the story of XFM. And you happened to appear on it, and I didn't realise you'd been on it. And I said, "That's that guy that I've just, he's just sent me an email like five minutes ago, saying there he's on the telly." Uh, so. How did XFM come about? Obviously, I know about the it took like a, a year or so to get a license, but how did yeah. you end up in yeah. I don't. I don't really know. I kind of, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time. I, I kind of did a test for um, for the station, and um, and then just got. I kind of thought I was pretty awful, but I just ended up getting asked to do um, get asked to do a show. So I thought, all right then, I better do it, and. Um, and then, yeah, and then we ended up getting the license a couple of years later. So that was very exciting. And um, and I really, really liked that. I just loved, you know, I'd always, I'd grown up with DJs and I just loved the whole concept of just, you know, you can sit there and write 300 words on a record and people still don't understand what you're talking about. And when you're a mm-hmm. DJ, just, just put it on. You don't have to say anything at all apart from, this is quite good. And then, you know, people can make up their own mind straight away. And it was a revolution then, you know, they've, you know, when you're hearing bands like Seafood and Campang Bellis at 10 o'clock in the morning, um, uh-huh. in, you know, certain regions in the country, that was that was a real breakthrough moment. And I think I think Sammy, I think Sammy Jacob got quite a lot of, he came out of the film quite well, I thought. Uh-huh. I Chris Parry got a bit of a kicking because he was the one who masterminded the sell to Capital. But I think um, it did seem that that had to be done at some point. But the only reason why I did the um, I did the actual film in the first place was because I spoke to a few people, and um, and they said, um, you know, because I said, well, it means I can I can I can get my story in, mm-hmm. and they said, yeah, well, the story, well, you basically left to do Fierce Panda, didn't you? And I said, no, 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 I would have given up Fierce Panda in a heartbeat. Um, but when we did the test runs, I'd been doing the drive time show from Monday to Friday, and um, and you know. Could say I was a bit conceited to expect to be getting the job full time when the station got the full time license, but to be fair, so did everyone else. Certainly, everyone at the NME thought I'd be leaving. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, and then Sammy phoned me up one day and he just said, "How do you fancy doing seven till nine? And I just went, "Well, you know, not to mention the name of the bright lord again, but I'd be right up against Steve Lamack on Radio One." Yeah. He goes, "Yeah, that'd be brilliant, wouldn't it?" I was going, "Why would that be brilliant? <laughs> What's the point of that?" You know, that's just absolutely ludicrous because no one's going to listen to me. No one's going to think, oh, so stop listening to Steve on Radio 1 go listen to, you know, yeah. the, the second-hand copy on a second-hand station 
Um, so yeah, that was it. I kind of, you know, and then ended, ended up doing a Sunday afternoon show and then I managed to piss Sammy off even more by, you know, playing weird shit there. So yeah, so it kind of ended rather abruptly. So at least, so I got the opportunity to actually, like, you know, I got interviewed about that for the film, but then that didn't actually make the final cut, but it's okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets over. It's okay. Yeah, all, it's in, all the, it's all in the book, up. you know. Yeah. Also, it was also the story of um, Ricky Gervais's life as well. Right. Yeah. And I have mentioned that in the notes I sent you over, but what was it like working with Ricky Gervais? Did you have much dealings with him? No. I, um, weirdly, he was um, he he did some really good stuff. He was the booker at Yulu, which was my mm-hmm. favourite venue at the time. Um, I referenced earlier one of the popular self gig. So, and he managed Swade. So he was actually. It was cooler than most of us, to be honest with you. But um, but yeah, he was um, yeah, he was he, he he kind of he was a source of great amusement and bemusement on air every day, and um, you know, people seemed to like him, so that was okay. Yeah, I mean, I I think it would be a pain in the ass to be dealing with when you're trying to concentrate on the music and you get I'm just eating my bit and stuff. Yeah. Hey. Sure. Uh, don't forget also that Sammy was um, the great influencer and there's so much of David Brent came out. And, of XM. Right. And back to, you know, I'm the best boss you'll ever have. <laughs> you, can see, you can see you can see where a lot of the source material came through for Ricky and Stephen. So, you know, again, you know, at least some good came out of it. So just before we go into Fierce Panda then, with, with Sammy and... Obviously, you clashed quite a bit when it was the end with, like, just playing with the songs that you wanted and stuff like that. What, what's your relationship like? Have you do you see Sammy any anymore? No, I mean, very few people do. Apparently, um, someone was saying to me the other day he wasn't even invited to the film premiere, which I found a bit perturbing. But um, but then apparently he was actually there. He bought his own ticket and he snuck in at the back. Right. And, um, and and watched watched his life story on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't take it particularly personally, um, apart from the fact he destroyed my radio career. Um, you know, he was forever storming into that. I mean, there were the stories in the film, you know, Tav and people like that saying, you know, any, anyone who tried to play anything with like a any kind of funky beat or a hip hop groove was destined for some kind of, you know, Sammy storming into the studio and screaming at them on air. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, again, he was obsessed, but they, you know that's the problem with radio. They're all obsessed with with listenership, aren't they? Um, I mean, yeah. Steve and Joe. Steve and Joe had a problem when they when they played the streets the first time on the evening right. session. You know, it's just thousands of complaints from you know outraged indie kids going, "What's this? What's this ain't music?" You know, and then finally, you know, six months later, they're all they're all watching him at Brixton Academy, going, "This is." One of the most most amazing things ever. So it's, you know, mm. it's, it's 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 always a tough thing. And um, but yeah, it was just a, it was just. I mean, I couldn't. I wouldn't have lasted much longer anyway. You know, by the time Capital came on board, that would have been the the death of me. That would have been. Yeah, you know, I'd have no wouldn't have stood a chance whatsoever next to Heart <laughs> FM. <laughs> yeah. You could have you could have been playing all your um, fierce panda releases. Well, this is the great thing because they, they, as a, you know, the, as DJs, I found I found the DJs much more accommodating than than enemy journalists. They're really, really friendly and really supportive. 
And um, and the great thing for us was the fact that because I thought, well, I'm going to carry on doing the label then. Um, and when the station did get its full license, I'd just be doing my Sunday afternoon thing. And um, and we'd have, you know, we'd have the llama farmers, we'd have seafood, Campag, Veloset, we're all on the playlist. Mm. So, you know, you're, being, you're hearing them like all the way through the week. And if I had got the drive time show, then that would have been, you know, it would have been a disaster because I wouldn't have been able, <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to play those records. It would have been, it would have just been too awkward. But as I say, ultimately, you know, if I'd had the choice, if I'd been, if I, if, if I'd been given the choice, I would have stayed, I would have stayed at XFM. That, that's, that was my, that was my dream job. Right. Be the DJ to the nation, mate. Well, we might, we'll need to start our own, we'll need to start a new radio station then. We'll get, I'll give you the, whatever show you want. If you don't like to do the evening show, I'll do it. Uh, anyway, Fierce Panda. I was always aware of Fierce Panda because of Embrace. Mm-hmm. The first um, Embrace single was done in Fierce Panda. So that's how I knew about you. And then obviously Coldplay and Keen, they were like the, the big ones that I knew. But you've been running Fierce Panda for what over 30 years or close to 30 years right so a long time we're running a record label how did all this start it um just in that kind of perfect innocent way i.e um you know just three blokes in the pub um and we'd invented this scene called new wave of new wave which was a tribute to a couple of punk rock bands at the time um and um and we thought this this scene it needs a it needs a tribute record, um and um and we're the most unqualified people to release it because we know nothing about putting records out, um, but you know we're three points in so um you know let's think of a name of a record company so we came up with Fierce Panda because they're not fierce, mm-hmm. and um and I quite like pandas, and then I thought it's not like anyone. I'm just going to, you know, time, is it? Um, <laughs> um, and, and in the end, New Wave, New Wave had quite a long shelf life because it actually, it just basically, it was basically precursor to Britpop. I think John Harris, um, my, uh, one of my colleagues um, at the label, mm-hmm. always said that Britpop was kind of new. New Wave and New Wave was Britpop without the tunes, which was kind of, you know, fairly accurate, but it certainly had, it had all the Adidas chic and it had all the drugs and it had that kind of, you know that Camden vibe to it, um, uh-huh. and, and, and bearing in mind in 1993 the whole world had gone grunge, so it was it was the start of the fight back, and mm-hmm. then six months later, obviously you know everyone was wearing Adidas in the middle of Camden Town or wherever, and um, you know so the only weird thing was that the Fierce Panda ended up having quite a, a longer, much longer shelf life than we expected as well. Um, yeah, you know in which case we would have if we'd known that we might have thought. A bit more carefully about what we're going to call ourselves. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant name. Um, right. I, I, do. I mean, it stands out. I, I think it's a brilliant name. I love it. Throughout your time with Fierce Panda, you've released, and these are the these are like the bands that I know. You've released thousands of thousands of bands: Supergrass, Ash, Blue Tones, Green Day, Placebo, Embrace, Kanaki, Idlewild, Coldplay, Keen, Artbreak. Millions, well, millions, thousands of other bands, um, mm. but they're the ones that stand out for me. I don't feel when I see you after reading your book, I, I thought I knew a lot about music, but seeing the amount of bands that you mentioned, I was like, 
over my head. I don't know them. Um, no. So is that that must be the life of a, a guy in the music industry with an NME and XFM and Fierce Panda. There must be so many bands floating about your head. I, I don't know how you could remember it all. Well, I mean, I kind of, I've got it quite easy. I find, especially nowadays, you know, we've got, we know what we're doing with Fierce Panda. We've got our, you know, we know pretty much exactly what we want to sign. I feel really sorry if you're working for a major label where you've got no, you have to be onto everything before, you know, before it's even formed nowadays. I think back then, you know, part of Fierce Panda's success was just down to the sort of, you know, raging ineptitude of the major labels, really. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, no reason on God's earth why we should have been anywhere near Coldplay or Keen or bands like that. It's just that the majors had already rejected them. So, you know, we ended up just putting their singles out because they had nothing else to do. And then, the, yeah. and then the singles got on the radio and then radio changed everything because once they're on the radio, it kind of made made all the A&R people sit up again and then, you know, start fighting each other, which is... Yeah, and, the, and then ultimately what happens there, but obviously with Coldplay and Keen, they basically get taken, taken away for you, but if it wasn't for yourself, we probably wouldn't be hearing these bands. Yeah, but then maybe not, maybe, you know... It's, you can't tell with these bands, really, because, you, you know, no one looked at Coldplay at the Bull and Gate and thought, you know, one day they're going to be doing six nights at Wembley Stadium. You know, they'll no. be officially, they're, apparently they're officially the biggest band in the world now. Not the biggest act in the world, obviously, with all your Eds and Adele's and all that. But apparently they did a, I was out with one of their team the other day and they did the usual sort of slightly self-deprecating blushing thing, which is... Yeah, we had a chat about this. We think that the six nights at, at Wembley Stadium makes us the biggest band in the world. So, you know, that kind of that normal, but they've been, you know, they're still really nice to me now. So, uh-huh. you know, and maybe, you know, what we lost out in 1999, we've gained just by still having that relationship with them to this day and just having that, you know, that kind of level of um, the backing, I suppose, that kind of level, in, level of endorsement from them. And, mm. um, you know, at the same time, there's loads of other people who think that, you know, we're the worst label in the world because we put out Coldplay and Keen. So <laughs> you can't win, can you? <laughs> well, I was I was thinking that about, like, Chris Martin, obviously, especially. Do you do you think he's changed? I kind of, I, I think that he's changed, but then he's, he's changed again. He's kind of gone back to his old ways, I think. I think, I, I think something... I think something's triggered them with the book, with the Pandemonium book, because mm-hmm. we did um, we did a reissue uh, about four years ago. We took the first EP, Brothers and Sisters, and we put out, made it into a couple of coloured seven inches, uh-huh. and they were absolutely fine about it. And they were really still with it. But there was one little thing where, on the press release, we said this times in chimes in like twenty five years since it first came out, and um, so it's a nice little anniversary touch for the press release. And the management came back and said, can you can you just get rid of the reference for 25 years? Because the band just don't want to be seen to be getting old. That's <laughs> why they work with BTS. That's why they work with anyone new that's coming through. So right. no, they, I, know, I don't know if they stop, they don't want to become U2 or something like that. But they, they've, they've always had that kind of terror of, of aging in, front, in, in the public's eye. Um, whereas I think subsequent to the book, I think they've kind of relaxed a little bit. And um, mm. and certainly the way they've been talking about the panda has been absolutely brilliant and really supportive and, and acknowledging 
our place in their history. And bearing in mind, we were only with them for like six months mm-hmm. out of you know, however, however many years it is now. There's no there's no need for them to do that. Just a little a nod and a wink would be fine. But they seem to be, um, yeah, they seem to be even even friendlier than more, even friendlier than they ever were before. Before that, there was Embrace. What, what was uh, how did you meet Embrace and how did that come about? Embrace was at that time in Brackpot. Embrace was my biggest band. That's a band I went to see. So I've I've always kind of wanted to know how that came about. Um, it was probably the most um, the most corporate thing we ever did. I know people now think that. You know, a lot of our early singles, especially, were just, you know, basically deal, done deals with major labels. You know, the bands had already been signed and stuff like that. And I think Embrace was probably the only one where that was actually virtually the case. So they've been talking, they've certainly been talking to Hutt for ages. Mm-hmm. And um, and we knew Hutt really well because we did, um, they, they, they basically signed all the new wave of new wave bands. So Smash and These Animal Men. Mm-hmm. had signed to Hutt. Um, Placebo went on to sign to Hutt as well after we'd done them. Um, and Embrace was basically, it was just put to me, said, look, you know, they're going to be signing to Virgin. Do you want to do the single? And I think at that time, you know, nine times out of ten, I'd just gone, nah. But it's all you good, good people, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's literally one of the greatest songs of all time. You know, I'd have to be, I'd have to, I'd have to, I would have had to sack myself if I turned it down, you know. <laughs> So yeah, but yeah, brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant song, right. and a great. Uh, I love the first album as well. I think I think I think that whole first album is absolutely terrific. Yeah, I I play that at least once a week. Yeah, it's all the it's anthems all the way through. It's brilliant. Yeah, uh, and when I was about about fifteen years ago, when I was when I when I was a young boy, um, I went to work in a hotel at Melbourne. For a, a, I stayed there for a month and it was just all mountains and stuff and seeing my days off, just went out with my CD Walkman on and yeah. blasted that. It was perfect for it. Uh, Wibbling Rivalry, mm-hmm. a famous single that, again, I would never have put down to it being yourself. It was part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was that like then, that? Because it's a quite funny story about who you passed off we put in that yeah just um it was it was one of those things where john harris had done the interview up in scotland and um and he just came back with it just came and it was it was just the funniest thing any of us had ever heard you know they were just they just didn't care most people by that point and it wasn't their first interview it must have been you know i'd already done them on the road already done their own piece so it must have been the third or fourth interview just for the enemy let alone anyone else and at that point, I think we all quite liked Oasis. This goes back to seeing what the water has. But there was something just a bit, I don't know, something a bit weird about them. You know, the status quo bits and the T-Rex bits and the, mm-hmm. and um, you know, is this cool? And uh, and then I think Whipping Rivalry, just, just, it just made them, it just made them really, really cool. Certainly to us when we hadn't been that quite sure. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's just we just turned it into we put made a release of it and just turned it into like fourteen minutes of swearing, and then we had this whole panic attack on because it was like okay, so this is a real proper official bootleg, so you know we thought we're okay with creation because you know we got we get on really well with Alan McGee, we've got a good support with the press officer, we like most of their bands, still not sure about Mishka, and then and then but then we had the Sony lawyers phone us up. 
because Croatian uh-huh. went to Sony. So it was like, oh, this is a bit of a problem. Um, and then it turned out they just asked for a copy because they'd heard it was just really, really hilarious. So you had to send them a copy. <laughs> and then we had the chart people phoning up saying, we reckon it's, it looks like it's going to go top 40. So have you got any kind of, can you give us songwriting credits? And I said, I was sitting there going, have you heard this? I mean, literally, <laughs> have you heard these tracks? You ain't going to be playing this on the top four each hour rundown. Uh, and in the end, luckily, it went in at 52. So we got away with that one. And then one day, the NME got a phone call from the um, a representative of the Cray Twins. And uh, just saying that, because uh, we used them on the front cover, because we didn't want to get sued by Oasis. So mm-hmm. we didn't use a picture of Liam and Noel. But then we almost got sued by the Cray by the Cray twins for using a picture of Liam and Noel, but by not using a picture of Liam and Noel. And um, yeah, I mean, basically the quote was that um, you know the the Crays are very unhappy about being associated with with a bunch of reprobates like the Gallagher brothers. <laughs> so yeah, we are who it was that made the phone call. It wasn't like Mad Frankie Fraser or something shouting down well, the no, it, was, it was just it was a representative. <laughs> I don't think it was. I don't think it was a close personal friend. You know, <laughs> for anyone to actually understand. You know, yeah, yeah, very scary. Yeah, but um, but a brilliant thing to do. Really, really was. And um, you know, I did think about reissuing it a couple of years ago, but I thought, nah. No, that's that bit. That'd be too cheeky. I didn't think. I didn't think Liam or Noel would appreciate it this time round. Well, the hang is, if one of them didn't like it, that, that's the thing. If you, if one of them didn't like it, the other one would. So yeah. you would. Well, there is that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, like we we touched on Keen, and that kind of got me to the fierce panda working with like bigger labels, like Infectious, and and then you started. Temptation label as well. Am I right in saying that? So, what was the kind of what would you say the pros and cons are of working with these sort of labels? The, well, the, the pros the pros are you get free money, and the cons are it's just, it's just the most it's the most futile, stupid thing that anyone can do. And and I did it, and I'd known you know Tony Wilson's done it, Alan McGee's done it. You know, uh, mute sold out to EMI. You know, it, very very rarely does it ever end well, because mm. essentially you're putting through, you're putting through alternative acts, through a major system, and you know, and the budgets just don't add up. You know, there's no middle ground with the majors. It's all or nothing. And I've been in before with, I've had deals, and I've said to you know the bosses there, you know, instead of giving one band, a hundred thousand pounds. Why don't we just give five bands twenty grand each? One of them's bound to become popular. Yeah. Just, wow, it's not really how we work, you know. If we believe in a band, we really want to get in deep. <laughs> so this is weird, but that's the way it was. There was no middle ground, and and then I kind of that's what ended our kind of crusade with doing all these singles, really. You know, but to be fair, it's only now that I've realised that it's been um, we had ten years of it essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, the first year of the Panda was just, you know, sodding around doing those little six track EPs. And then the second year of the Panda, we just went completely punk rock and just started working with bands like Joey Fat and Ligament. And then the third year was when we kind of accidentally hit our stride and we went from, you know, Placebo, Kanicki, Three Colors, Red Through to Embrace. Mm-hmm. We thought, that's interesting. Hmm. People seem to quite like us. And then we carried that through to, you know, from, from from eight from ninety six to two thousand six, and then two thousand six was probably the Maccabees was one of the last 
singles, uh-huh. at which point the majors just stop signing guitar bands. Yeah, I mean, the Crabs, they, they were involved as well. Did you have a, am I right in saying you had the chance to sign the Crabs and you, you chose not yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, no, I can't, you know, it's just one of those things where it, it was suggested to me by their publisher that it would be a good idea if I signed them. Uh-huh. And, um, and I said, they're all right. Okay. <laughs> 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 you know, it was just, I don't know. It was very, um, yeah, yeah. My, I don't know, it's... Um, the thing is, you can't have a constant success rate. No, and it wasn't, and it wasn't even that. It wasn't, you know, there was you'd see bands that were obviously doing well, and they were really hot, like Block Party and Kaiser Chiefs. But it's just, mm-hmm. I just didn't, I just didn't really, I didn't really like them. So you know, and that I think that's good because it was not the point. We weren't, you know, with all the bands we referenced, we weren't doing them because they were hot and buzzing. We did, we just did them because we liked them, and then they ended up becoming hot and buzzing because uh-huh. we put the first single out and then it got on the radio. I mean, Placebo, we heard about them after their third gig and we put on their fourth gig. So mm-hmm. that's, how, that's how early we were. But it wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't us being weird or creepy or or showing off. That's just, it's just the nature of the beast, you know. And also people are really nice to us as well, you know, because we were such a weird little thing and we were only a part-time operation. We still worked at the NME. So we were like Switzerland of the indie world. So people, you know, other labels would tell us about these bands. You know, Creation, it was Creation who told me about um, Kinnicky. Um, you know, so it was it was seen as quite a good thing and people wanted to help us out. Obviously, like what you mentioned about um, what part in Kaiser Chiefs and things, Kaiser Chiefs were under a different name before that and they changed and they kind of changed their style. Um, and that happens quite a lot. There's a lot of bands like Mumford and Sons and mm. uh, what you call it, the vaccines and stuff where they've done all sorts of different styles of music until some, something's kind of clicked and they've got some sort of success yeah. with it. So there's obviously that part then as well where you, you, you maybe not be able to take them seriously or you, you don't think of them as um, genuine. Yeah. Um, so is that a lot of the case as well? You need to believe in a band fully. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think I've, I think I'm over myself now. I think I could, you know, mm-hmm. I think I think I think that was just a polite way of not making out as a complete A and R idiot by turning these bands down. <laughs> but yeah, we had had both hands on both bands on before, and it was there was part of that. There was definitely an element of it. Where I just thought. Well, I don't. I'm not sure. I don't think these people believe in their own music. So, you know, how can how can anyone else believe in them? And it turned out that quite a few people could really, really believe in what Block Party were doing and what Kaiser yeah. Chiefs were doing. Which was, you know, to be fair to them, they were just, as you say, they just they just found that ideal musical formula and they, that which they didn't have before. And it, that's what, and and that sometimes that name change creates everything, doesn't it? Yeah. So I mean, I did, I did have a couple of years yeah. where I, I kicked about wearing a tie and pretend there was Ricky Wilson and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Good days? Yeah, yeah, good days. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I, I don't know how my liver still survived that. But so while all this was going on as well, and you were, you were you're running club nights as well, um, successful club nights all over London. Tell us a bit about that. Obviously, I've got a big long list of 
of names of people that you you had on at your club for Blois, Travis Stereophonics to the kind of more indie kind of killers, Razor Light, Keen, Arctic Monkeys, you had all these bands on. So it's it's obviously spanned a good 10, 15 years of yeah. uh, club nights. So what was what was the idea behind that? Was that was, I kind of, I would, I would put club nights on just so that I could have a night at. So is that kind of a lot of the thinking behind that? Yeah. You're just putting on your own party, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, you know, it sounds hopeless. I just found that um, uh, I kind of, it started with um, people just realising there were certain caches to the enemy. So we, we, we were involved in a night called Club Smash at the old powerhouse. And that was basically me, Stephen Mack and my mate Ian Watson all DJing. And that was every Wednesday night. And it was just absolutely brilliant. We had radio, Ed Pulp, Suede, that kind of thing. That's every hot new band. So you think, you know, probably one in one in 50 bands are actually any good. No, it's not. It's one in 50 bands became successful, which is a very okay. different thing. A lot of other excellent bands came through at that time that weren't as big, you know, so they don't get remembered. Um, and then I just I just got the bug for it. I just thought this is absolutely, oh, I like this. This is, the, I, li- I like the routine of it. I like the OCD-ness. I like the fact that, you have this combination of the music industry and fanzine writers together shoulder to shoulder at the bar and mm-hmm. and all enjoying or unenjoying the music as the case may be and um and so we took that forward then at that place we put on the launch night for new wave new wave the new wave new ap ep called shagging in the streets and that sold out and then we thought oh this is double marvelous so yeah so away we went to so club spangle club panda club fandango um it was just absolutely non-stop. You know, we did the water rats, did Dublin Castle. Um, and it was always during the week. We always, you know, and the, and, the, and the sentiment never changed. And we're still doing it now. So mm-hmm. this Wednesday, I've got, we've got the Lexington. And we've right. got Enjoyable Listens headlining, one of our current signings, with Albert Gold first mm-hmm. on. And we've got Lilo in the middle, who I've never seen before. And um, so it's been new and exciting for me. Right, uh, and we also do a monthly night at Jaguar Shoes, Dream Bags Jaguar Shoes, sorry, in Shoreditch. Um, every every old man needs to have a favourite new venue, um, mm-hmm. and again the same combination there. It's kind of you know bands. I just find it easier just putting our own bands on. You don't have to deal with other promoters. You don't have to deal with live agents. You don't have to deal with blah blah. I'm the guest. This is only five people, and there's only yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. If I'm going to lose money on a gig, I can lose it myself. Very well, and, and drink the rider. I'm fine with that. Thank you very much. And you hook up with, you know, the promoter, uh, the main promoter at Jaguar Shoes is brilliant. The sound man's brilliant. The bar manager's brilliant. All these other facets that you wouldn't normally think of because you're mm-hmm. just wandering in and just checking out a band. That's what I love about it. I love all that. I called it, I've described it as a science of gigs, but someone who is a scientist just said that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. But I'm still going to stick with the science of gigs. And, and, and for example, um, Jaguar Shoes in probably May time, that was enjoyable listens headlining there. And they, they got 80 people and then they played the Shackle Arms two months later and they got 150 people. So now they're at the Lexington. And right. again, it's, it's just nice and easy and it's, it's kind of calm and relaxed and you're not putting any pressure on anyone and no one's demanding £5,000 and you know, and, and buckets of rosé in the in the dressing room or anything like that, you know. You're dealing with reasonable people in reasonable venues, and I just find it, you know, I find it very, very, I find it, I find it illuminating. And is that, do you get a big crowd to that then? Because obviously there's lots of these nights 
all all over London. Um, or there was there was like years ago. I don't know what it's like now if there's so much I've seen for these sort no, of No, it's but... really no. I mean that's why we're still doing it because no one else has bothered to pick up the mantle. There used to be the gold dust night used to be really, really good. That was a Hoxton Bar and Kitchen. That was really industry friendly, but Whenever I bump into A&R people nowadays, I say, oh, it's marvellous to see an A&R person out and about. It doesn't happen very often. They go, that's because we don't go to gigs anymore. Yeah. You know, the showcase the showcase days are long gone. Um, the Shackwell Arms is still, you know, still puts on really good sort of three, four band bills. Um, the Victoria I really like. Um, Old Blue Last is slipping a little bit. Um, you know, but it's, yeah, it's really, it's it's, it's changed so much. You know, I've been trying to do, um, I was trying to do a gig count this year to go and see 365 performances by different acts um, uh-huh. throughout, the, throughout the year. And um, and it's just become impossible. In the olden days, you'd go to like, you'd go to the Dublin Castle and the Bull and Gate and the Falcon and the King's Cross Water Rats. And there were, there was a, there were four band bills. So, you know, worst case scenario, you'd see four bands. If you timed everything right, you'd see like, you know, 50 bands. It was like every <laughs> night, South by Southwest. <laughs> And nowadays, so many bands, it's, it's just two band bills, you know, which makes it all, if everyone goes on stage at nine and everyone goes on stage at 10, then you've got no chance, have you? Yeah. You're, kind of, you're stuck in one venue. So again, we're trying to, we're trying to bust that mould again. You do think at some point, can someone else do this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, looking behind, going, Any, anyone else, anyone else fancy this? But no. No, it's still, it, but I, I, it just, it just makes me happy. And it, and I think the other key thing is that the bands, the bands seem to enjoy it anyway. Yeah, well, that that's what you're. That's the full reason you're doing it. To, you you want to see the bands enjoying it, and you want to see the fans enjoying the band. Yeah, and that's how it progresses. I that I put on a gig, probably about ten years ago in my local pub, and it was like three bands and. I found it the most stressful thing ever. See, trying to organise free bands because you think you're dealing with free people, but you're, you're dealing with 14 or 15 people. You think you've got every day, but then that band's drummer can't make it because he's got a wedding to go to that night or something. The plans go out the window, didn't they? Yeah. So yeah. I don't envy the stress of that. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. 2006, you, you moved out to London. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, kind of uh, to Suffolk. Do you think, like reading it f- from the book, reading the book, I kind of thought maybe like that was the kind of trigger, like you, obviously slowing down life. Do you think that had an effect then on your 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 mental health? And no, I think it, I think it was great for my mental health because being in London, I felt I still felt. Even by this point, you know, our daughter was three years old, so that was going to be a time to slow down. It would have been then, but I just felt I felt sort of morally and morally compelled to just keep going to gigs, no matter how bad they were. And I think moving to Suffolk just took that away. You know, I think I worked out that from the house in Holloway, I could walk to 18 venues. Uh-huh. And it wasn't about 18 pubs or, you know, 18 glasses of whiskey or anything like that. It was just like 18 different bands. Yeah. You know, that was that was the addiction, you know. And obviously, statistically, how many of those 18 bands in those 18 venues is going to be any good whatsoever? But you kind of, you know, you, you it was you, you ached when you're at home, which is horrible. Unless you'd been out for three nights on the drop and, and just <laughs> completely mental, which case your entire body was just saying, please stay at home. 
So moving to Suffolk wasn't a case of that at all. It was kind of, you know, it was really nice. Um, and it took away that stress. And I kind of tried to engage with sort of local venues and help them out and realise they didn't want to be helped out. And, <laughs> and so I stopped trying to help the local venues <laughs> and uh, and just engage. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a completely, you know, London really is just London, isn't it? Yeah. It's... I mean, it really, really, really is. But it's not, you know, it wasn't, I was living a lifestyle that wasn't sustainable to me. Right. And, um, and and to a certain degree, the music industry at that time wasn't living a lifestyle that was sustainable for itself, which is why, you know, they stopped signing guitar bands and just started, started signing pop acts instead. So the timing was perfect on that front. I think mm. I remember going to an in-city uh, booking meeting and that was the, you know, that was where everyone had come from all year. All the, all the guitar bands for the past 10 years had come through in the city at Manchester under the tutelage of uh, Tony Wilson. And um, and then I remember going to this A&R conference meeting and sitting around choosing the bands. And I think out of that 18 bands, no, maybe 30, maybe about 30 bands. One of them was actually a band. And the rest were all duos or solo artists or anything like that. That's how that's how fast it changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go along, I remember seeing, I remember seeing the Heartbreaks play. And, I, you know, it, everything had just changed you know i thought 10 years ago you'd have walked into a, a half a million pound deal but mm. now you know no one's going to touch you with a barge pole it's such a dramatic turnaround so obviously we spoke at the start about your suicide attempts during your recovery your recovery kind of coincided with covid mm -hmm. so how did you manage how did you deal with all that the recovery along with COVID and still having the record label? Well, it was, um, it was, I mean, quite, quite a strange time for everyone, wasn't it, really? Mm -hmm. I mean, I went home at the end of, sort of, you know, middle of January, I was back in Suffolk. And then middle of Feb, we kind of started working out what to do with the label. The idea was put the label into hibernation, shut down the London office, um let's take stock of everything so no i didn't know i knew when i would be going to gigs again mm -hmm. um and then obviously within a few weeks there weren't any gigs and all offices were being shut down you know for, for once in the entire history of fierce panda the timing was incredibly perfect mm -hmm. um and then it was also brilliant for anyone in you know close to the label because it meant that you know the story was that i'd been a bit ill and then everyone was a bit ill so again, you know, it's kind of who's, who's going to care about me when you've got millions of people dying, you know, my problems are insignificant. So it's good. Whereas if life had just carried on as normal, that would have been completely different, I think. But I was just allowed to sort of just carry on with it. And then I think the one thing we managed throughout COVID was we managed to get a newsletter every month. That was the key thing. Um, obviously, there was no touring whatsoever. Um um and luckily we had some bands that were close-knit so for example with china bears um ivan and um fraser from the band are twins so they moved back home to the west country together uh -huh. uh, desperate journalists are two couples so they were you know cohabitating moon moon panda is a couple um you know it was the bands who who lived in five different places even in across south london who were absolutely screwed because they couldn't rehearse so they couldn't write yeah. so they couldn't record so their careers absolutely stalled um we we do we revisited the six track ep idea 
um uh, for the, the covid the covid sessions which is basically covid versions i cover versions and that did really well you know some of the bands they caught each band did a song by like pole or strokes or people like that mm-hmm. and then and then we just basically readied ourselves for coming out of it so the first thing we did was we did a little pandemic ammonium fest at the victoria just kind of five nights of music to celebrate coming out of it although half the bands didn't couldn't make it obviously because they called covid so that was <laughs> and obviously everyone was really scared half the people wore masks and half the people didn't it was, it was incredible i mean it feels like it was like a century ago doesn't it but yeah it was it was it was, it was just insane wasn't it it was it was mental. I mean, it's only like it's it's just over a year that I went to my first gig again. I went to see Billy Bragg at the Barrowlands, and it was uh-huh. and obviously that's an older crowd anyway. So looking around, that everybody was wearing masks. Yeah. And apart from myself, I wasn't wearing a mask. I was like, I'm not wearing that. I'll be too hot. Jump a bit, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, the crowd that was there, they were, were too old to be jumping a bit. Yeah. yeah. But, also, um, the, the other, the other, the other lucky thing for me was getting getting what I did out of the way. The grand malarkey, as we call it, mm-hmm. I got it out of the way because otherwise, uh, I, you know, the state of my brain before that, I don't know what I don't know what COVID would have done. COVID might finish me off anyway. Might have just been that, that's the fine. That really is the final straw. But luckily, you know, I was in a much 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 healthier position and mm-hmm. and on medication and being extremely well looked after. So, so it was absolutely fine. And as I said. You know, if there was one thing that might have driven me slightly a, a little bit balmy, it was it could have been FOMO in terms of not being able to go to gigs. But because there weren't any gigs, there was no there was no FOMO because there was no mo to foam. <laughs> that might be the best quote for your Idlewild quote. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we go into your heroes. What's your future plans for yourself, for the record label, and just life in general? Well, um, I mean, one never wants to look ahead because then one gets disappointed. Um, I'd say furthest that we're literally looking at is probably the end of February for our 29th birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the back of my mind is thinking about Celebrating thirty-three and a third years mm-hmm. of Panda, so that takes us another five years, I guess. Right. I've got. I did actually write down the specific date the other day. I mean, my, the mind boggles as to what music industry is left, or into some kind of smashed ways. Maybe we'll be doing it on the moon by then. That's the latest I heard. NASA's now going. Oh, we haven't been here for fifty years, but now we're going to be living here within a decade <laughs> on the moon. Uh, brilliant. Um, Back to but I'll dig out my ELO records again. Um, I think it's just the same old, same old, really. Just um, you know, just carrying on. I think I think we've got a, a niche now, and we're never going to be signing the new Stormzy or the new Dave or whatever. Or well, I don't know if guitars are really going to come back again in the way they ever were before. You just you know, bands are still being signed, but most of them are rubbish, to be honest with you. You know, but I just find that what's fascinating to me is just on the underground as ever the the level of music is the quality of music is absolutely astonishing yeah you know it's, you it's always there night and find something even if it's not the best band in the world it could be the most interesting band in the world you know mm-hmm. and um you know we've done a booked pandemonium festival for january and it was an absolute breeze you know we've got like 21 bands 24 24 bands something like that and and 
and and and I think they're all gonna. I don't think I don't think any drummers are going off to weddings or anything like that. I think they're, you know, they're all, they're all <laughs> understand their the need for it, and we've we've actually started. You know, we've announced it and everything with dice links. So you know, we're, we're ahead of the curve. So we just hope that if there are there are any blizzards at the start of Jan, and I think that's the main thing. You know, as I said before, without the bands, Fierce Pound is nothing. Without the venues, we're nothing. So if you've got good bands playing good venues, that's that's all I need. There'll always be. There's no point in stopping. There's no point in just going. You know, oh, I'm not putting any more records out because no. you'll just we'll walk into a bar next week and just like, oh, they're absolutely brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just end up accidentally doing it. You know, the classic. <laughs> would you want to do a single or first band? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll post the links to Fierce Panda for your. All your stuff for your festival and anything else that uh, a link for your boot and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last bit of the podcast is obviously because it's called Time for Heroes, I ask for four heroes to come for a fictional dinner party. They mm-hmm. can be dead or alive, whatever mm-hmm. aspect of life you want them to be from. Just let me know who your heroes are and why they're mm-hmm. your heroes, why you're coming for dinner. And what you would cook them? Well, this is a weird one because of, you know, if you count the fanzine and you count the NME and you count promoting gigs and you count Fierce Panda, that's a lot of potential hero status people I've met. You know, it's kind of, you know, I've been stared at by Peter Hook from New Order and I've interviewed Scott Walker and Burt Bacharach and... Obviously, I've worked with DJs like Stephen Mack and John Peel. And obviously, I've done, you know, Chris Martin and I've hung out with Oasis. So you kind of, you know, there's quite a few choices there. So I've got to, yeah, it's a bit outside the box. So the main one, my first, my first guest would be Johan Cruyff. Brilliant. So I love the, a footballer in this. The, 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 the greatest, the literally the best player in the world to never win the World Cup. So that mm-hmm. saves the ongoing debate about him versus Pele versus Maradona versus, yeah. you know, in the olden days. Um, and I just, um, I just loved his attitude, <laughs> his skills. There was that great story about, you know, he was um, uh, Holland were, were endorsed by Adidas in um, the '74 yeah. World Cup. Uh, he had his yeah, own personal deal with Puma, and so if you look on his kit in that thing, he only had two stripes on his shirt because he tore yeah. one off. Because he refused, because he was being paid by another company. Yeah, and, that, um, well, I like the fact that he also, story. And, he, and he smoked, which was also brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then obviously years later, he ended up at you know in charge of Barcelona, and then nurtured Pep Guardiola. So essentially, he's the father of modern day football. Yeah, now, without Johan Cruyff, Man City would not be Man City. Um, next to him, uh, I'm going to kind of cross over from football to music. Go for Pat Nevin. The most indie footballer of all time. That's the dream for everyone, isn't it? You're, you're rocking out there in the FA Cup final with the, with the Cocteau twins on your headphones. He's, he's living, <laughs> he's living the best of all dreams, isn't he? Um, and I was listening to him today, and um, he was doing the um, Five Live uh, Cocoms, as they call it now, uh-huh. um, on, the, on the Qatar um, Ecuador mismatch. Um, and I was just reminded of um, you know his, um, his his skills. He just seemed like a very very nice man. Yeah. And do you remember the story about him with the? He used to buy two copies of the NME, 
because they just go into his bag and just set fire to it or rip it up so yeah. he, just, he just he just very calmly had a spare copy in his car and then he just read that on the way home so yeah, a man with intelligence as well as great skill i've heard, um, I've heard pat nevin um on i think brian mcclure's got a podcast as well Right. Brian McClure's another one. He's right into his music and the two the two of them when you get both of them together, yeah. they go off on a wee musical and of course, tangent. They and don't of course want to Stuart Pierce as well. Yeah, he was into his punk, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And still is. Still yeah. still 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 going down the pit. Well, he says he wasn't down the pit. No, who did he go and see the other day? He was at the roundhouse for something. And he said, Oh no, no, I wasn't down in the pit. I was I was upstairs in the balcony. I can't do the pit anymore. <laughs> Um, a third one um, is flipping it slightly. It's Paul Heaton, right? Um, mainly because I'm not I'm not an enormous fan of House Minds or Beautiful South, but I had a very long conversation with his drummer the other day, who explained uh-huh. about how Paul's basically never won an award, even though he's outsold his peers by forty million to one. Mm-hmm. He's just never been that kind of that ne- never never been controversial enough or wild enough to hoover up all the all the awards all his peers have got um which does annoy him slightly but at the same time he still pays his dues and uh, like he takes out new bands all the time uh-huh. you know i think he's got billy bragg's doing the next tour but that's quite weird for him normally he's he's, he's taking out lathams and ratons and bands like that you yeah. know showing the you know basically the, all the new house martins so um and also um he um he collects crisp packets Right, which is one of my, which is one of my little um, little skills, and um, and <laughs> hopefully now now I've befriended his drummer. Um, my next project is to do a book on crisp crisps and crisp packets, and hopefully I can get an interview with um, Paul. Maybe it will be this special night. Would be brilliant. talk to him about it. That's brilliant. And see if you get. We can, we can ask Pat Nevin what his flavor, what his favorite flavor is. <laughs> well, if you get Paul Heaton. Um, once you're done with him, send him my way because I'm t- I've been trying to get him on this podcast as well. There you go. I will in that case. And then the last one is um, lastly Janice Long, right? Because uh, as I said before, I sort of love all DJs anyway, and um, and I really really admired her because she was there in the eighties where I mean, but just basically her and Addie Nightingale, wasn't it? In mm-hmm. the midst of all the smashy and cr- smashy and nicey crowd. Um, so whenever she appeared on top of the pops with her back home hair, it was always brilliant. Um, and then she was also a DJ on XFM when it first started, and she was really, really lovely to me. That when mm-hmm. I was, you know, I knew nothing, and I really looked up to her. And then, um, and then, of course, um, it wasn't so long ago that she passed away. I think it was cancer did for her in her mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, but even up until the end, she was on Radio Wales and um, and playing playing heaps of Fierce Panda records. And, and always enthusing about us and making a point of saying that was on Fierce Panda and they're a brilliant label. That's That's brilliant. Nice. Mm. And what would you cook them last lot? Are you a, it's, are you a good cook? I, I I'm not I'm not <laughs> disastrous cook, but um I wouldn't cook for them anyway. I'd take them out. To, we'd go to the Shackerwell Arms in Dalston. Brilliant. So the, as I said earlier on, you've got really good three or four band bills. So you can always trust there's going to be something interesting going on. Um, you've got big screens for the football, which is uh-huh. still fairly unusual for most indie venues. They get a mm-hmm. bit confused about why would we want to show football? We've got bands on. And crucially, it's got a lovely, lovely smoking area for Johan Cruyff. 
<laughs> that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Simon, you've been a fantastic guest. It's a pleasure speaking to you. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. I'll post all your links everywhere. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.